This is KMUW Wichita Public Radio. Engage ICT is a community engagement event of KMUW Wichita. The following event took place on April 10th at Roxy's Downtown. Welcome everyone to Engage ICT Democracy on Tab. I'm Sarah Jane Crespo. I'm very glad to see all of you here this evening. Um, I'd like first, before we begin, to thank our partners in this series. Uh, number one is Roxy's Downtown for the wonderful venue and food. And Roxy's is actually having a drink special tonight called Going Green, and it sounds delicious. So if you would like a glass of Going Green, uh, raise your hand and, and it shall be done. Um, also a big thanks to the Wichita Public Library. Have a round of applause. The library provides these wonderful further resources guides uh, every month at Engage ICT. And in fact, um, we always have the, the prior forms here at each of these events. So if we had an event in the past that you were interested in but you couldn't make it out to, you can pick up one of these guides. You can also, by the way, listen to the podcast of these events at engageict.org. So there is that as well. Um, and I have to say, the resource guide for this month is just full of really fascinating books. I checked several of these out from the library and they're wonderful and interesting and you all should check them out. So thanks to our partners, um, and we will go ahead and get started here and uh, introduce our panel. Um, and I should say what we're aiming for tonight, since the, the topic can be hmm, one of those topics that kind of gets people's attention, climate change, um, we are aiming for a community discussion, not a political one. Um, our panel is comprised of people in science and public service. So as you're thinking of questions to ask the panel, also keep in mind that we do not take political sides. Uh, it's about empowering you with good information. So, um, But that said, please do ask questions. Uh, there should be question slips on all of the tables. Fill them out and uh, give them to Alexis. And, uh, and we will get your questions answered. So now we will kind of go down the line and uh, each of the panelists can introduce themselves and we will start with Chip Redmond who is with uh, KSU's Weather Data Library, uh, Maisonet Manager. Um, Chip, will you tell us about yourself and about Kansas Maisonet, what it is, and uh, how did your path lead you here? Yeah, sure. Um, so I am Chip Redmond from K-State. Uh, it's called Mesonet. Everyone gets it confused. So I said meso. <laughs> um, the Mesonet. Uh, I'll, I'll talk. I'll talk about that last. So uh, I have I came from Ohio, born and bred. Um, I went to Ohio University, and then I got stuck in South Dakota, going to the school of mines in Rapid City. Um, and then I just kind of find my way here in Kansas because uh, weather jobs were hard to get when I graduated, um, and it turned out to work out pretty good. Um, I, I run or op, help work with Mary over there in, in the end, um, and uh, so I'm the Mesonet manager and the Weather Data Library manager. Um, I won't take her steam from the Weather Data Library part, but uh, besides, so the Mesonet stands for uh, Meso, which stands for Mesoscale, um, which is smaller than the synoptic scale, so smaller than the national scale, um, but larger than the micro scale, which is basically the city scale. So it's a statewide scale. Um, mesoscale, it's a meteorology term, and then the network obviously stands for network, um, the net. 
Um, and so that's just a network of weather stations that are located throughout the state. Um, we have 58 stations that are owned and operated by K-State. Uh, and uh, they run 24 hours a day collecting data out in no man's land. And they get visited a couple times a year, um, unless something breaks or gets hit by lightning or burned over, um, which happens too often. But uh, so that's, that's a brief of what I do. I also work a little bit with the Kansas Forest Service. Um, I do some stuff with wildfire um, and forecasting and go out to national incidents and that kind of thing, so. Thank you. Welcome, Chip. Next in line, we have Rachel, and I forgot to ask you how to pronounce your last name. I don't even want to try. You don't want to try. It's Miss Livy. Ms. Livy. Miss Livy. Miss Livy. Miss Livy. Okay. All day long. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Rachel is with the Climate and Energy Project. Tell us about your work and uh, how you help people to make the connection between their energy choices and air and water quality. Great. Um, thank you, Sarah. Um, so first, before I say that, I would love it if anybody wanted to come down to the front here because you all seem super far away and it'd be nice if we could have more of a dialogue. Um, so as she said, I'm Rachel Miss Livy. You can just call me Rachel if you want to talk to me afterwards. Um, the Climate and Energy Project is a 10-year-old nonprofit. We uh, focus on practical solutions for a clean energy future. Um, largely, that has meant uh, renewable energy, uh, wind and solar, and energy efficiency. And we have, um, the way we work with Kansas is we have programs to try to help people understand um, the complexities of energy usage and um, water conservation and now um, the connections between health and climate resilience. And so you may know us from the Take Charge Challenge, which was an energy efficiency competition we did for several years where we got people really excited about saving money, saving energy, having fun, and winning prizes. We were actually on the front page of the New York Times for that, uh, so that was kind of exciting. Um, we've done a program called Water and Energy Progress that celebrated Kansas farmers and ranchers who are using innovative methods to save water and energy. So we really try to use a Kansas approach and lift up the good things that are happening in our state. We focus on common ground solutions that work for a lot of different reasons. Um, currently, we have a program called Kansas Wealth, and Wealth stands for Water, Energy, Air, Land, Transportation, and Health. And the idea with that is that by prioritizing our wealth resources, we um, safeguard our communities and the future of Kansas. We also have the Clean Energy Business Council, um, which is exactly what it sounds like, and a, a, a leadership program called Kansas Environmental Leadership, and a voter engagement program called Climate and Energy Voters Take Action. So that's probably enough for now. Thank you. Welcome, Rachel. Next, we have Ken Cook with the National Weather Service. He's the meteorologist in charge. Uh, Ken was actually with us for our public safety discussion. Uh, Ken, will you tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe recap how climate change affects public safety, what you talked about a little bit last month? Okay, sure. Uh, good, good evening. My name is Ken Cook, as uh, Sarah said, and I do work at the National Weather Service here just to give you a little bit of the backstory about me. I grew up in South Florida. I really enjoyed uh, the weather as a, as a, as a boy, and, and uh, you know, I made it my career. I got to follow my dream. And uh, you know, I, I grew up there. I worked at a couple offices down there. I graduated from Florida State University and then moved to North Carolina and worked in an office there for a few years and got to experience my 
you got my, my hurricane experience there, and, and honestly, I got kind of tired of it because we had, uh, you know, being without power and sleeping and sweating all night, or at least trying to sleep and then get up for a cold shower in the morning for weeks on end. It just kind of got old after a while. So moved on to Washington, D.C. at headquarters and did a lot of programming there and then moved to Wisconsin and worked there for seven years. And now I've been in, in the Wichita area for 13 um, when I came here, I was the lead scientist and operations person at the office, and last year I became the uh, person in charge. Um, what we do at the National Weather Service is provide public safety. Um, protection of life and property is our primary goal, our mission. We also work with um, other agencies like the fire department, um, emergency management, law enforcement, um, as well as private partners like AccuWeather. We do work with power, the power industry, and what have you in various ways, airports. There's a lot of different people and organizations and groups that we work with, not just to keep you safe, but for planning um, and preparedness, also to help them plan and prepare. There's a lot of, uh, you know, when disasters happen, either before they happen or even after, there's a lot of mutual aid that has to be planned out. So we try to help out with the weather aspect of that. Um, so that's basically what we do at the Weather Service. I'm not on TV. Um, so don't ask me that. I get that a lot. Um, I work over at the building there on the west side of the airport with the big ball. And, you know, climate change is something that, uh, you know, the Weather Service obviously being part of NOAA is something that we study for um, have decades, for quite a long time, and continue to study. And uh, we, we've done a lot of research there. Um, we're just thinking that we're just, you know, getting into the tip of the iceberg with climate change and understanding that and how that works. And especially how that can impact uh, farmers, the agricultural industry, and even your safety with severe storms. So we do do a lot of that research. Uh, we continue to do that. Um, so we look forward to our discussion tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome, Ken. Also this evening we have Susan Erlenwine uh, with the Sedgwick County Environmental Resources. Uh, Susan, tell us about yourself and what you've seen change over the years of your work with the county. Well, good evening. Actually, I'm from Tampa, Florida, so I've been through hurricanes and weather changes, especially moving here to Kansas. That was a big change in the dryness here compared to Florida. Uh, I uh, really want to say on environmental that it's, I love the field because it's a diversity. You're working in biology and chemistry and physics and weather, air quality issues, water quality issues, and right now I'm working trash issues. Uh, I've been I've th through several waste analysis, which is a polite way of saying picking through other people's trash to determine the percentage of what people throw away. Is it? And the main thing we throw away here is paper products. That's you know like 29% of our trash in Wichita's paper. So we do that. Um, right now, last Thursday, Friday, Saturday, we are sponsoring an electronic waste collection event free for the people in Sedgwick County. We're doing it again this Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. So last Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, three days, we collected over 170,000 pounds from over 1,300 vehicles. And I expect more this coming weekend because last weekend had pretty bad weather. And we've also had uh, waste tire events. We've had five of those and collected over 835,000 tires through those events. So we're trying to help clean up the community, get the breeding habitats out of there, help people properly recycle the material, all of that e-waste 
is recycled. There's no landfilling from the material. We're wiping the hard drives and trying to do right by the people. You get that? You wouldn't believe the old console TVs coming in or the <clears throat> old TVs that are taller than I am. So it's kind of fun in its own way, but I'm glad people are taking advantage of it and doing that. So really, I'm in a field that I enjoy because we try to help the community. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome, Susan. Last but not least, we have Mary Knapp uh, with the KASU Weather Data Library uh, and Department of Agronomy. Uh, talk about your experience and some of the things that you've learned about um, one, a couple of things you mentioned to me, cloud seeding and climate change's effect on insects, I thought uh, sounded fascinating. Good evening. <coughs> I, yes, I, I am a native Kansan born and bred, unlike the rest of the group. <laughs> <coughs> But I have, uh, have experienced my hurricane. I spent two years in the Peace Corps in the Dominican Republic as a rice extension worker. And what I was looking at there was how um, water and the environment affects the rice production. Two plots that were about five miles apart had entirely different characteristics because of the source of the water and how cool the soils were. They also had what they called a wet season and a dry season in that country. Uh, from Kansas, it wasn't considered wet or dry. During the dry season, it rained every other day. During the wet season, it rained every day. So it's kind of like, okay, um, yeah, a different kind of environment. Came back to Kansas and started working in the entomology department. And what we were looking at was how temperature changes affected insect development, in particular, the European and Southwestern corn borer, the um, overwintering and survivability of those insects. And of course, that was all totally weather driven. Um, from that, I moved over into the computer systems office, and we were working on decision management tools for um, producers. And again, a lot of that was weather driven. So I got very familiar with looking up and finding out about weather resources. Should give a little bit of backstory. The Weather Data Library is also serving as the state climate office. State climatology was once part of NOAA and the National Weather Service. And in the 70s, they decided it wasn't germane to their mission, and so they closed all of the state offices. Uh, Kansas State University had a um, professor of physics who was also the state climatologist at the time and said, oh no, this is too important for us. We need to have that continued. And the university agreed and continued to fund that position. They've also gone, and, and when he retired, I took over his position. That was back in 1991. Uh, since then, the university has decided we need even more resources, and about five years ago, they went from a one-person office to a five-person office. So now we have a tenure-track faculty that's in climate research. We have Chip, who does our network management. We have a technician that helps uh, maintain the stations and a programmer to help make that information available to um, the citizens of Kansas and in general, anybody that asks for it. So my function is to make that weather and climate information available so people can make sound decisions on what actions they might take. Thank you. Welcome, Mary. The first question that I'd like to ask all of you is, uh, 
is climate change the right term? Is this the term that you use, or is there some other term that, that is better, uh, more accurate, or more, uh, more used by people in your profession? Go ahead, Chip. You want to say something? <laughs> so um, I think climate change is the term that has been given to the, to the whole field in general, whether we want it or not. Um, I think really what you could call it is environmental change because it's not just the climate. We have a lot bigger impacts, whether they're above the surface or below the surface. Um, and, and I think that uh, the, the, this change has been going on forever since the, the dawn of time. Um, now, the human interaction with that has drastically changed in the last couple hundred years. Um, and I think uh, we're starting to see those impacts more obviously as we have, you know, driving down the interstate down here today, all I saw was trash on both sides of the road all the way down here from Manhattan. And just think, you know, 100 years ago, that never would have been the case. And just what kind of impact is that having, let alone just to the climate itself? So um, I, I like to call it environmental change and, and consider all those other factors as well. Other thoughts? Rachel? This question feels right up my alley, but I have to make one clarifying statement. I didn't say anything about my background. I am a lifelong Kansan. I've never lived outside of the state, so I get the Kansas star for the panel. Um, so thank you. Uh, so we, since we talk mostly to just regular people about um, practical solutions that work for Kansas, we try to, um, historically, we've never used the term climate change because it's divisive, and we are really focused on common ground solutions. Um, so instead of throwing out you know, bombs to people, we try to um, ask people what they're concerned about and try to understand what their issues are in their communities. Um, because the reality is, as I'm sure everyone else will say, climate change is going to impact every corner of our life. So um, some of the things that we've said, some of the phrases we've used, and they've changed over the years. Um, when we first started, we really only talked about um, renewable energy and energy efficiency as really practical economic drivers for Kansas, which they are. Um, but we didn't really talk about them in relation to climate change, and we made great strides with that and got a lot of people excited about economic opportunities for wind development and ways that they could save money for energy efficiency. Um, when we started the Water and Energy Progress uh, program, which really focused on farmers and ranchers, we did that because we knew that there was a lot of national and global discussions about the nexus of water and energy and the potential conflicts that would be coming up in the future with water and energy. And we wanted to do it in Kansas with a very um, optimistic lens by celebrating what was working on the ground in Kansas. And so we asked producers, Kansas producers, you know, how they framed, like if you're making all of these changes, to make your farm better and stronger in the face of a changing climate, what do you call it? Um, and so they helped us kind of understand language that worked better for, for some of the farmers and ranchers, and that's managing for the extremes. Um, so as you, if you're Kansans, and since I'm a lifelong Kansan, I know we have a lot of extreme weather here, and so learning how to manage for the extremes feels like a really practical way of doing things. It feels very Kansas. Um, currently, we are, because we're talking more about the health and um, uh, 
oh, the health impacts of, of climate uh, changes that are going on. Um, again, we don't talk about climate change. We would talk more about community resilience, how you can make your community stronger. We all want that. And so regardless of you know, how you feel about what scientists say about climate change, all the things that work to make your communities stronger in the face of a changing climate have multiple other benefits too. So we would talk about community resilience, um, sometimes climate resilience, because that's also really relevant. But at the end of the day for us, um, we want to be reflecting back what we're hearing from Kansans. So we do a lot of work out talking to people, um, hearing how they frame it, and then we try to, to make our work relevant to the people who we're working for, which is the people of Kansas. Um, will one of you volunteer to give kind of a 101 level explanation of climate or environmental change? Uh, and also, Mary, you mentioned something about what that phrase brings to mind for people. Um, if you can describe that and maybe how that differs from your professional experience, um, that would be wonderful to kind of center us before we start. I'm kind of like, okay, <laughs> exactly what do you, do, do you, I'm trying to figure out what phrase I was talking about, but when you talk, talk about climate, um, generally you're looking at the atmospheric um, interactions with the planet, and you look at a climate scale, it's a longer term scale than the weather. Weather is day to day, week to week. The climate is made up of a long term pattern of weather. So you have to have the weather in order to generate the climate, and the climate is looking at the larger scale of, of time, and that's kind of it in a nutshell. Um, one of the big questions, of course, is, is, is the climate changing? How is the climate changing? And what kind of impacts are we seeing from that? One of the other things that I talk about quite frequently is how are we responding as a society to the extremes that we're currently um, encountering. And we can go back to the Dust Bowl era and look at some of the warmest temperatures that have ever been recorded in Kansas. Uh, we look at 1936 and 1934 in particular, where we had 121 degree temperature readings on two different occasions, and those were actual air temperatures, not heat indexes. At the time, People didn't have air conditioning. Uh, what did they do? In many cases, what they did was they went out and camped um, in the parks uh, along the riverbanks, someplace where it was cooler and they could uh, adapt to that condition. How do we respond in the current um, era? If, and you can look at the heat wave that hit Chicago in the 1980s, where people locked themselves into their apartments um, didn't necessarily uh, check with their neighbors, and uh, they had people who weren't running their air conditioners because they were concerned about the energy costs. So uh, again, the question that comes into play, as a society, how are we going to respond to those conditions and those, um, those impacts? The other thing I like to point out is that, uh, as Chip mentioned, it's an environmental change. Um, Manhattan is one of our historical stations. We have data going back to 1856 when the town was first founded. If you look at a picture of the area at that time, you see a wide open river valley with maybe two trees in the image. 
If you stand at that same hill and look across the town at that point, you cannot see the houses or the streets for the tree cover. So you've gone from an open valley to a forested region. That has impacts on what kind of climate you experience in that area. You are likely to have warmer temperatures, which we've recorded, but you're also like to, likely to have fewer extreme temperatures on the high side, or, or on the low side for that matter. You don't have as many 110, 111, 115 degree readings, but you don't have as many minus 25, minus 30 readings because we've modified our microclimate in that area by the way that we've interacted with the environment. So, Thank you. Does anyone want to add into that? I will ask a question of the audience, if I might. Absolutely. When people talk about climate change or global warming, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Uh, and when you talk extremes and temperature, when do you think that those extremes are going to occur? Are you thinking hot, hotter summers? I see some nods in there. And we see a lot of them that are going, yeah, hotter summers. Well, in Kansas, looking, we've got 23 stations that we have um, continuous daily data going back to 1900. And all of those, we are seeing a warming trend, but it's almost entirely winter low temperatures. So when you think about the change in climate, the impact that you get from warmer winter temperatures is going to be very different than increased frequency of 100 degree days, which there's actually a trend for those to be on the downside. So how you respond to that will be slightly different. And again, when we're talking climate, we're talking local climate, not necessarily global climate, because those impacts are going to be different um, in different places around the world. Susan? I agree with Mary as you talk about weather is short-term, climate's long-term, and we look at what is normal. What was normal 50 years ago is not what we see today or what we'll see 50 years from now. So normal is the change and what is happening. And you're right, the environmental term I like because a lot of people forget about the ocean's role in all of this. Ocean is a heat sink. And as the temperature rises, the temperature of the ocean rises, it's expanding because of that. You also have a higher acidity in the ocean from the carbon dioxide being incorporated in the ocean water which is going to kill off the coral reefs and already has started that. So you see different trends. You mentioned insects earlier. Uh, the time of the blooms that happens on the plants, will that match with the migrating birds that may use that or other animals? Will we see insects survive the winter that carry uh, zoonotic diseases that affect people? So I think we'll see more insect-carrying diseases because of this. We're seeing more fleas. I've talked to the vets, and they say they're seeing more fleas not only resistant to the sprays, but surviving the winters. And the ticks, the same way. These guys carry diseases. So I think it's going to affect our human health in the long run, as well as the environment we live in. 
can uh, can you talk about the increased precipitation and is that a, the predominant issue from your vantage point or uh, tell us a little bit about what you're seeing there. Sure. Uh, over the last, oh, last year even and the year before, we've had some pretty wet years. And uh, if you go back for the last uh, few decades, we've been in a wet pattern. And but if we if we look at the climate over a long period of time, we have years that we have decades that are dry, decades that are wet. And so um, right now we've been more or less in kind of a wet period. And that does um, change things. You know, if you are in a wet period, you need less irrigation. You know, you maybe have some kind of insects that don't, um, that respond more to that than others. Um, you know, right now, um, just in the last few years, because it's been wet, um, you get see a lot of dry land corn being grown further west and, and things of that nature. And that can affect, you know, that um, the moisture that corn produces in the air will affect the climate. Um, versus if they grew something else or didn't grow anything. So I think that does affect things also. Um, you know, just to kind of add on of what we were talking a little bit about before, you have practices now that weren't in place 50 years ago, like irrigation and things of that nature. You know, we spend uh, gallons and gallons and gallons of water, um, you know, watering our lawns and uh, growing trees in our yards and this type of thing. And how we force that and how that reacts to, you know, moisture in the atmosphere and different things of that nature does change the climate. And, um, you know, we, those are things that I think we need to have a better understanding of. So just along the, the lines of precipitation, um, that's uh, kind of my alley since I have weather stations and I, I measure that precipitation, um, which is one of the reasons, you know, we... we we focus on a weather station network. We have to observe these changes, um, and without scientific data to back that up, I mean, we, we can't go anywhere. And that's why, I mean, there's only 23 stations that go back 100 years. That's a very limited data set for, um, I guess Kansas isn't the biggest state, but it's still, that's not many stations to represent a whole, a whole state in itself. Um, one of the things that has been mentioned a lot in literature is the, not necessarily the more or less precipitation, it's the duration and intensity of precipitation. Um, so we've seen an uptick in, in the last few years of uh, localized to heavy precipitation that we just, we've never really seen before. Some of that's due to, you know, our, we're, we're observing more now than we ever have before, either through satellites or radar or um, weather stations. Um, but the, the impacts of that high precipitation, high, high intensity precipitation um, create runoff issues, they create water pollution issues, um, and then it also makes that the life or, or surplus or deficit problem where if you don't get that high amount of precipitation, you might not get any rain the rest of the summer kind of thing. Um, so you get a lot more people with not getting that much rain. Um, and, and so you start to see those patterns kind of evolve and they're, they're gonna change and fluctuate with time. But uh, then we start adding into things like urbanization and, and that sort of thing. Um, and yell at me if I jump ahead here at all. No, actually, that was the next question I wanted to ask. If you would elaborate a little bit on the effects of urbanization and um, other things that you see happening because of city sprawl, um, and uh, if garden, like urban gardening, can combat it enough, or you know, the, those that interplay between urban gardening and urban sprawl. 
Well, I just have the mic. I'll start with the basics. Uh, but just with urbanization in general, we have more concrete and we have more housing. Um, and we're, we're diverting the way rivers flow. I mean, when we put a whole town in the middle of River Valley, that's a, it's a big impact. We have to build dikes all the way around the town to make sure it doesn't flood. Uh, that's that's significant in the, in the local region, but also affects all the people downstream um, of that where the water flows. But then um, with the increased concrete and surface change, that water's going to run off. It's not going to be able to be absorbed anymore. So we're going to see more flooding in these areas, um, and, and, we're, and we need to we need to observe that and be able to to interlink that more to help city planners in advance, so we can think about these things ahead of time instead of going, you know, say Hayesville flooded three times in one year, and all of a sudden, oh, well now we're looking at it, we have a problem here. Well, no, you should have been looking at it 20 years in advance before you ever built houses out there. Um, and that kind of thing doesn't go, doesn't happen right now in a lot of places just because money talks. And if people have money and there's people that'll go there, they're gonna build there. So um, that's just one aspect of it. I won't get too far. Into I will interject a little bit in there also is that the tendency is to remember the last 10 or 15 years and not the long-term term record. And if we go into a period of uh, climate extremes where you have more frequent uh, of these events, you go the swing from wet to dry can be very quick and you may not be prepared for both sides of the coin. So if you have a decade or two decades of very wet weather, you're not necessarily preparing for that dry period that is um, a part of our high plains climate. And the other side of the coin, if you go for 20 years of drier conditions than long-term averages, you may not be thinking about and planning for and preparing for those flooding conditions that are also the other side of the coin in our climate history. I work with the Stormwater Management Board and they have been looking at this issue from runoff, impermeable pavement. City of Mulvane, which is down south of Wichita, has received uh, two 500-year storms in one year. And so you have a lot of flooding, and it can be very localized. We've looked at countywide how many projects there are to help reduce the flooding and what we, can we do to keep the houses safe. And I agree with they should have looked at that before they built, but that's behind us now. And when we look at that, we have half a billion dollars worth of projects sitting out there that we need to figure out how to fund. And our concern right now is if we go for a vote for people to help raise money, will we be in a drought time? And will they remember the flooding and say yes? Or will they say, no, it's a drought. We don't have to worry about the future. And so that's a concern that we have to work with the public on educating them on, yes, it will flood again, yes, there will be problems, and how can we be proactive and fix them? If I may continue on that um, discussion. When I lived out in Washington, D.C., they didn't have a big snowstorm out there for years. And so over time, the funding went down for their snow removal and um, you know, upkeep of their trucks. And then they had a couple of years in a row where they got some big blizzards. And they're all scrambling around how to get rid of all this snow. So again, they, they prepared for something for what they saw right now, which is not a lot of snow. And, and that can really, you really got to be up on your preparation. 
And you know, there, is, there are some success stories, I think. You know, uh, one thing we've been doing here at our office recently is looking at heat-related illnesses. And you know, we remember some of the big heat waves. The one that I think of is the one in the mid-90s where the upper Midwest had a lot of really hot temperatures for about a week. And there were a lot of heat-related illnesses back then. And so you think of urbanization and, you know, um, urban heat islands. You know, if you have those thermometers on your car, you'll notice if you're driving somewhere, you drive through town, it goes up about five degrees. And when you get out of town, it goes down about five, just as a rule of thumb or what have you. But what's interesting is that as, as we've been researching this, um, the number of heat-related illnesses where you would think that it would be highest impact in those cities actually occurs out in rural um, parts of Kansas, the number one, the counties with the most number of heat-related illnesses during heat waves is actually out in the rural part of Kansas. So I think the preparations that we're making, you know, and working with uh, the emergency managers and these people, EMS, that, that actually are the ones that really are the front lines of this, I think they're listening to us and saying these are the things that we need to do, and they're having some success there. So just want to bring that out. So, as I mentioned, with our work, well, like, um, I'm not a scientist, and um, but I do a lot of work with communities, and we've been focusing a lot of our efforts um, on uh, the public health impacts of the changes to our climate. Um, and I, I absolutely agree. What we've been trying to figure out how to talk to people about the rural and urban divide, because people often think of climate change as an issue that's going to impact um, mostly people in the cities, but you're absolutely correct. Um, people in rural areas are also experiencing um, a lot of challenges. And, uh, you know, we talk a lot about the um, connection with um, energy efficiency and um, these weather events and, and actually the justice and equity lens, too, um, because regardless of where you are, the people who will be the most impacted by these changes and by the extreme weather events that were happening are going to be happening are uh, lower-income people, the elderly, very young, um, and minority populations. And so they're all over our state. All of those people are all over our state. If I was doing a, a presentation, I have maps of where these different demographics live. Um, and it really is all over the place. And um, oftentimes, you know, uh, people might say, well, uh, why don't you just turn on your air conditioner if it's too hot? You know, if you're talking about heat-related illnesses, well, just go inside and turn on your air conditioner. Well, for a lot of lower income people or people on a fixed income, like senior citizens or people on retirement um, wages, um, that's really not an option for them. And, and we hear from people, well, you know, for me, it's not I just turn my air conditioner up, it's do I pay for my medicines this week or do I have a comfortable environment in my house? Do I keep the air cool? Um, and so, you know, while, while um, energy efficiency is an option for a lot of those people to kind of mediate some of those issues, um, there's, you know, additional layers to that, like, for example, a lot of lower-income people rent. I mean, I think that's a pretty typical thing. Um, and so uh, a, renter, a renter doesn't really have the option to, say, invest in um, securing the envelope of their house, getting more efficient uh, insulation or fixing their windows or whatnot. And oftentimes, if you look at, you know, I grew up in Great Bend, and, you know, uh, rental houses in Great Bend, the windows in rental houses in Lawrence where I live too, you know, windows, doors, you can see right through like cracks in them. I see somebody nodding. Yes, thank you. Um, and so renters don't have the option to just put in new windows so they have efficient housing. So they're spending money that they oftentimes don't have to heat or cool their houses and it's just kind of running right outside. 
Um, and so we really see this um, as, a, as, a, as a justice issue, definitely to take care of the, what I would consider to be um, like the least among us to use, you know, religious language, um, and to really help our neighbors to weather these storms. Go ahead, Susan. Uh, we talk about cities being in heat, Ireland, and cities are trying to address this at different parts of the world and country. Right now, L.A. is painting the streets white, and they've been doing this since last May in helping to reflect the heat back off of the area. You can also put gardens on roofs, and we've seen that happening. But they've actually noticed a 10-degree drop in the temperature in the areas that they've been painting it. And the uh, streets should last very well. They've done you know, tests on them as far as being too slick or you get good traction, and they should last a good seven years before you'd have to recode them. So people are trying to address these issues just slowly. Uh, would you all weigh in uh, on the benefits between innovations and in technology versus reduction in usage to alleviate climate issues? Jump in and <laughs> save the energy person on it. I think it's got to be a blend of both of them because you're not going to be able to um, innovate your way out of the kinds of impacts that we might be seeing. You need to be able to make some adjustments to it. Um, simply looking at the number of people on the planet versus what there were 50 years ago, you're going to have to be more conservative in your resources simply because there are more people that need to share those resources. So that's one thing that I think becomes very, very important. And I also will point out on that energy issue, we in Kansas have a cold weather rule that um, power cannot be turned out off to a household if the temperatures are cold enough. We don't have a corresponding warm weather rule. There's nothing to say that, okay, we've got this stretch of not necessarily 100 plus days, but actually there's been plenty of studies that show the danger is when those low temperatures stay above 70 that you get the greater number of heat-related illnesses. So again, it's what kind of parameter are we looking at and how as a society do, do we respond to that? Go ahead. I agree there's a combination, but one of the problems with the greenhouse gases the highest one is carbon dioxide, and that's mainly produced by fossil fuels and burning fossil fuels. So that's your coal, natural gas, and oil. And they're called fossil fuels for a reason. They come from carbon-based life forms, and we're putting the carbon back into the air. And that is causing the greenhouse or blanket effect, uh, trapping the air, plus hurting the ocean currents as well, as the ocean warms. So now, we're looking at how can we cut back on fossil fuels to help the environment by maybe using alternate energy sources, whether it's solar or wind or geothermal, whatever we can come up with to help. But it's got to be a combination. You're right. Well, and I'd like to follow up on that. Uh, you're talking about, you know, that we need to sh kind of share our resources, but... We're, I mean, you know, we can all just sit up here and say, hey, we should share these resources and use less of them, but at what point is it, you know, do you see what point it might be legislated or, or when might there be a policy that actually stops people from using 
so much water. Uh, you know, I wanted to talk about the Ogallala Aquifer. I mean, where, when is it, when is it going to go beyond a, a nice suggestion for people who particularly care? Any, any predictions? Well, the Ogallala Aquifer, as we know, has been declining uh, from overuse. And unfortunately, I was at a meeting in southwest Kansas, I won't say which city, where the mayor said, well, we can pump the water out now and use it or save it for future generations, so we just might as well use it now. So there, there's big movement right now in western Kansas due to the Ogallala Aquifer, and, mm -hmm. and it's in the form of WEMAs for the most part. And right. uh, which is, oh, I'm going to fail on the acronym right now. Limited Irrigation Management, yeah, Local, local Enhanced Management Action. So uh, basically what they're doing is they're, they're, they're cutting back the amount of water um, that they're pulling from these wells and hope that there will be more water for the future generations. By doing that, they're doing more uh, innovative things to help be more water efficient with irrigation, which is really the main drain in, in, of the Ogallala Aquifer. And so um, groups are coming together um, with small groups in, re in local regions coming together and creating these to help them come together and say, you know what, I'm not going to, I'm going to use less water. I need to make sure my neighbor down the road is going to do that as well. Because what's the point if I'm going to cut back my water usage and he's just going to take advantage of it and pull it out. So they're making these community efforts and, and these kind of things of using renewable energy, say like you know, solar panels and um, that kind of thing, it, it comes from the community. You got to start in small groups and it goes with anything, whether it's, you know, I'm going to, I guess I'm on that binge today, but trash. I mean, picking up your trash in a local community, you got to work together with your neighbors to, in order to, to motivate change and, and, and to try to prevent some of these negative things. So when you talk about going to legislature, you're, you're looking at a top-down type of method. These kind of, And that's not how democracy works in a way. It's from the bottom up. You need to come together as a group and work towards, towards a cause. Rachel, can you jump in and tell us how to motivate one another a little bit? Yeah, well, we, we've both periodically been like going for our mics at the same time, so I'm glad I jumped in here. Um, uh, you know, when I was growing up, if there was a storm or something happened and there was damage on our, our, on our property, my dad would call it an all hands on deck. That meant everybody has to do what they can do to get things right as fast as possible. It didn't matter if I was five years old or 15, I did what was appropriate for my age to help my family get things back together. And um, kind of to echo the things we said, I really feel like, or what has been said, I feel like this is an all hands on deck situation. So it's not just energy um, conservation or energy efficiency or water conservation or technology or even you know, what the great work that the Limas are doing. It's really all of those things. And every one of those things that you can think of to do um, has multiple other impacts. You know, oftentimes um, for farmers, if we want to stick with the farmers, the Sheridan Six Lima was one of our very first Water and Energy Progress Award winning groups. Um, and they've done amazing things. We also recognized farmers and ranchers who were really prioritizing soil health. So they were improving the water retention in their soil. They were helping water quality because you know, if your, your soil is healthy, it acts sort of as a filter. 
um, they were getting more productive yields because their soil was healthier, and they actually just kind of felt better about their farms just in general. You know, it, it benefited their community, it benefited their family, it benefited their land, oh, and it also helped, you know, pollinators to have more diverse uh, cropping systems, adding cover crops and things like that. So, I mean, to me, it's like, I think a lot of times what can happen in these conversations is people in the audience can sit there and think, oh, that's not me, that's not me, I'm not a scientist, I can't afford solar panels, you know, I this, I can't this, that, then the other. And really, to me, the very most important thing that all of us need to be doing is having that all hands on deck mentality. What can I do with the resources I have right now? Go ahead and do that thing. And then think again, now what can I do with the resources I have to address another thing? And it's really, to me, a process of growing and um, investing in yourself and in your community and really in the future of our world. Mary, did you want to say something? You looked like you did. I was going to, but I, oh, on the soil health, one of the things with that is it increases carbon fixation. So it stores that carbon back in the soils. And so again, that's one of the benefits of having that. Rachel, I wanted to follow up and ask uh, on a little bit of a higher level, what kind of energy strategies appeal to the people that you talk with? Is it green energy? Is it uh, selling excess back to the grid? Or are there other innovations that are popular among people? You mean just from our experience talking to people right. in Kansas? Mm -hmm. uh, well, it kind of changes. When we first started 10 years ago, um, energy efficiency was really the hook for people. Um, and you talk about technological development, you know, we were talking about CFL, you know, those curly lights at that time and getting people to switch to CFLs. And now, you know, we're trying to get people to switch to LEDs that have like a 30 year lifespan. So, you know, those kinds of things. Um, wind was really big. I mean, wind, there are wind farms around here, around, around these parts. And wind was really a big focus um, for quite a while. Um, so much so that we went from, you know, having hardly any wind at all 10 years ago to now our, um, we have 32% of our energy um, is from wind in Kansas. Um, and I think the kind of exciting thing that we're seeing now is uh, real interest in solar. So in the 70s and 80s, solar was like way expensive and really only for people who are incredibly committed and they didn't care about payoff and they had the money to spend because it was the right thing to do. Well, now, I mean, the, the, the phrase people use is the precipitous decline in the cost of solar. So it went from, you look at the charts, and it's like, you know, here in the 70s, and it's like down here right now. So solar is really a very affordable option for people, both community solar, um, rooftop solar, and things like that. Um, so we hear from, I mean, you ask what do people say, what are their, inter what are their interests, it really depends on the, the person, and we do try to talk to a lot of different people, but right now solar is kind of the buzz. Um, but I actually wanted to hop back for just a second to your other question, um, and I really appreciated what you said about, you know, we c it's not really a top-down, it's got to be a bottom-up. I think it has to be both. And I think we'll see things happening and really moving and getting traction at the legislature when more Kansans get involved. So um, it's, it's a, I can't get the exact number off the top of my head, but I think there's, I think it's 60% of adults have never been asked to register to vote. Whether you are registered or not, you've never been asked, are you registered to vote? So if you're not voting, if you're not registered to vote, if you're not voting even in your local elections, you're not really having any say in, in what's going on at the top, you know, at the top level, to use Chip's um, language. 
So um, we, every year, we host a day of advocacy and education at the Capitol, Wealth Day. Um, unfortunately for you all, it just happened. It was March 15th, um, but you can put it on your calendars to pay attention next year, and you can find us at climateandenergy.org. Um, we had about 225 people at the Capitol this year advocating for the things that mattered to them. So we didn't say, you need to come to the Capitol and advocate for solar. You need to talk to your legislators about solar. We would not say that. We would say, come to the Capitol, learn about the issues from these all these you know 30 different organizations who can talk to you about water, energy, air, land, transportation, and health. And then you go to your legislator. Please go to your legislator. Be polite. Tell them what you're concerned about, why you're concerned about it, and ask them you know, what they can do to support you and your community in these concerns. Um, it's, a, it's a really great way to get involved. Um, but even if, you know, obviously you can't hit Wealth Day right now because it just happened, but when your legislators come home, you can talk to them. If you care about clean energy or if you care about clean water or soil health or what have you, make an appointment to go to coffee with your legislator when they're here because they really are they're there to serve you so if you don't talk to them they don't know what you want and so really to me that that's that's where the change needs to start happening in kansas right now is for people to be making those individual connections with their legislators i don't know who wants to jump in on this next one but uh, do we have an idea of what to expect in kansas 50 to 100 years from now and what long-term adaptation strategies are people talking about right now to cope with any of those predicted changes anyone they're yeah <laughs> they're, they're going to throw me under the bus they do they do have a climate um change report that's uh, expected to come out any day now um, and what the general consensus is sorry who's they I just they is a group of scientists that cover the the gamut from NOAA to um, USDA to state climate offices to the national you know, national weather service um, through through uh, tribal entities there's a whole group of people that are looking at that. And they've broken this, the um, country up into regions. <coughs> and there's the Great Plains region. And when you look at the Great Plains region, there's quite a bit of variability because it covers the area from Texas to North Dakota. And you're looking at what kind of climate impacts you see in North Dakota may be quite different than what you see at the Texas Gulf Coast. So focusing in on Kansas, what they're anticipating in the next 50 years is warmer temperatures and drier conditions, particularly in the Western Plains. And what some of the things that people are talking about, and I'll talk from the agronomy department because they're focusing on that, and they're looking at improved um, plant efficiency, drought tolerance on, on the, that, um, how the plants respond to those conditions. Some of the things that they're looking at is increased heat tolerance, so that if you've got those warmer temperatures, that the plant is able to continue its productive um, behavior on that. In addition to that, they're looking at uh, incorporating um, insect resistance uh, or disease resistance, because again, what we could see is um, a drier pattern, but the distribution of the rainfall is not as beneficial as it has been in the past. So instead of getting that rainfall distributed over our growing season, it may be concentrated early in the season where you've got 
planting delays and then you don't have as much water available when the plant is at its highest demand. How can we um, prepare uh, crops that are responsive to those range of conditions? Is it, are you talking about the National Climate Assessment? Yes. So that's publicly available. You can go online and Google the National Climate Assessment. There's also a climate and health assessment that takes uh, more of a health approach. Yes, and that, uh, I think, is they were in um, Washington, D.C. last week to do the final polishing on that. The draft version has been out available on the web for about a year now, but the final product should be available shortly. And if you do that national climate assessment, you should be able to find that fairly easily and readily. How involved should local municipalities be in providing solutions or programs to mitigate environmental change, for instance, by providing recycling programs, or, the, or can the free market take care of this on its own? Yeah, I want to, Susan, could you kick us off here? The person who works for the government. <laughs> uh, honestly, it depends on um, the severity of the problem. We have some champions right now on the stormwater problem that we have and runoff and trying to help that issue. We have others who champion like the electronic waste event we're doing now to really promote that and get the funding for it and try to promote recycling for the community. So uh, we do have people who really see the need for these items and to address it. On the local level, um, we have the Arc River Recharge Program going on where the little Arc River goes over a certain height above flood level. They can pump from that, clean up the water, pump it back into the Equispeds Aquifer. And what that does is twofold. One is keep raising the level of the aquifer as we're using it, so we're recharging it. But also there's uh, salt pollution from prior oil drilling where they dumped the salt water that was left over on the ground, and it's coming from the north and encroaching on the Equispeds water. And so the more water we can put back into it will help slow that down, or else in the future we'll be pumping salt water out of the Equispeds. So we do have programs going on. Maybe people aren't aware of them, but we are looking at issues to try to help the water quantity in the future through the recharge program. Uh, rebate programs for buying energy-efficient uh, appliances. Wichita has that going on right now. So they are trying to help people address these problems. Of course, they can always do more. Um, Susan, where can people take their old electronics, and what environmental effects are we worried about from improperly discarded electronics, other than this weekend, of course. Where, okay. where, where are they supposed to do On our website, sedgwickcounty.org, uh, under environmental resources, we have a recycling guide for appliances, metals, paper, any of that material, so people can go to that website. We have a household hazardous waste facility that people can take your unused cleaners and other material to for free. Also, we have a swap and shop there. So if someone else dropped off a good product, uh, the label's still on it, you can come in and pick it up for free. So we're not paying for disposal. You're not paying to buy the product. And the facilities at 801 Stillwell open 
9 to 5, Tuesday through Friday, 9 to 3 on Saturdays, and we get over a million pounds of hazardous materials a year at that facility. So we're, we're trying to do good at that. Uh, but our e-waste event you know, is this Thursday, Friday, Saturday, but in that uh, recycling guide, you can find where you can take it locally. And what's bad about electronic waste, the old TVs and monitors had lead in the glass. So just throwing it away, you're putting lead into the environment, concentrated lead. And also, a lot of those products have a beryllium and cadmium and mercury in them, which is bad for the human health. And all of these materials will be removed properly through our recycling event and uh, disposed of correctly. And of course, there's some good things in electronics like gold. So when you recycle it, they're looking for the gold too, but properly disposing of the bad components as well. Do indicators show that big causes of climate change are solvable by big solutions as far as land use or policy or anything that, uh, that we've seen as far as solutions go? Or is there a little bit of doom underneath the surface that you all are sensing? Go ahead. One thing we need to remember is when these chemicals go up into the atmosphere, they don't just disappear. They stay up there. Some of them have shorter half-lives and only up there seven years, others may be up there decades. So we know that if you cut off all of the pollution right now, you're still going to have a problem in the future. Um, some communities, especially coastal communities, are looking at sea level rise, putting in rules of all new homes or extensions of existing homes have to be built higher than in the past, not just that you're in a river floodplain, all homes in the community have to be built higher. They're putting up seawalls. Uh, you know, a couple of us here are from Florida. We realize that a lot of Florida is like one to three feet above sea level around the coastal areas. All of those could go under. So uh, docks are going under now. They, communities that see the most effect right now are the coastal communities. And they're looking at putting in regulations on building homes, putting them in the right locations, and building it correctly to try to prevent future flooding. So it, because the chemicals will be in the air for a while, we need to cut back on it, but it's still going to be with us. Any other thoughts? Mary? The other thought that I want to bring to it is to be very cautious about these um, global engineering um, proposals that are there. We're still in the infancy in our understanding of what impacts the uh, various um, chemicals and uh, patterns are on the global environment. And if we think that we can control it by tweaking a knob someplace and saying, all right, if I spray this chemical here, that will cool it down and it'll be the way I want it, um, that's a very dangerous thinking because we really don't know enough to be able to say how that tweak of the dial is going to affect somebody halfway around the globe. So again, it's uh, if we clean up our act here, reduce the amount of chemicals that we are putting into the atmosphere, um, that's a much safer road than going in and thinking that we can um, use some sort of geoengineering to correct the problem. The one thing I was going to say too, and this is 
I don't know if this is in our lane or not, but you know, and when we're thinking about these solutions, there's also just more than just the solution to it. And, and I mean that, you know, there's other ancillary impacts that maybe we don't expect. There's always, when we legislate things or what have you, sometimes there's unintended consequences. Um, you know, it can damage the economy in some ways. We can go back and look at examples of that, like the five mile an hour bumper, for example, and things of that nature where at the time it sounded like a good idea, but it caused all these other dominoes to fall that no one really foresaw. So it, I, I think that when we, we're thinking about solutions, we should. I think we, we should help do things on the local level, kind of what we're doing, you know, be our own stewards of what we can control and just continue the scientific research, especially with climate. There's so much into that and we're just really scratching the surface like what, what Mary's saying, to really understanding how the whole global climate works together and how we feed back into it um, from the local level and how we all contribute to that. So. And I think you have to don't put all your eggs in one basket kind of approach. Um, you, you can do many different things um, besides just one, one thing to improve it. Um, and we're already, we spend most of our time fixing the mistakes of the past, and it's, it's really easy to get caught up in that and not think about the future. Um, and so you, you just got to, like you mentioned, you take one step ahead, but think of the possible outcomes it could have, even though it might sound great. Um, and usually if it sounds great, there's something hidden behind it. But um, like living on the coast, for instance, I mean, there's still, I mean, the houses are losing in California and in Florida and on the East Coast. I mean, this isn't the first time they've had waves that big. It's not the first time that, you know, hillsides have fallen into the ocean in California. So uh, you got to think about those kind of things in advance. I would point out that uh, Kansas did take a, you guys remember the 1993 floods, right? All right. It was really bad along the Kansas River in Lawrence and uh, in Manhattan and in other areas. Uh, Kansas did take a proactive uh, measure with that. Rather than just paying for the damages, they actually bought out areas that were in that floodplain and converted it to uses that would not be impacted by flooding. Uh, parks in particular were one of them. And when they did the parks, they put in um, picnic tables and structures that, okay, it flooded, they'd rinse them off and they would be good to go again rather than um, rather than paying for flood damage and rebuilding houses in the same dangerous area. Just, it's not just floods either. I mean, look at it from the wildfire perspective. Um, there, there's two, two aspects to that where agriculture is kind of struggling, so you see more land being turned over to native prairie, um, and, and then you see it get left alone, and it's not managed and taken care of. They put in more cedars, or cedars come naturally. Um, and then they're not managed, so you start to see a significant wildfire threat. And then, so we're not really seeing necessarily a climate influence. It's still that, it's the surface management that's, that's driving it. And then you get the people that really desire to live out and just kind of like wanting to live on the coast. They, they move into the middle of the sand hills near Hutchinson and expect their house not to burn down. Um, I mean, these are areas where fire's been dependent. Fire's been dependent across the whole state. But now when we have one, we have lots of people that have moved out there. And now we have a new risk that's not necessarily um, dependent on, on other influences. It's what people, their decisions that they're making. Uh, so when I applied for my job six years ago, 
I told my boss that I'm a Pollyanna, that people always called me a Pollyanna, that I was I was that annoying person who'd always be like, oh, but come on, it's not that bad. And so I was, I'm, I'm gonna pull that right now and say, um, there's a, a quote I love that I'm not gonna get quite right by Dorothy Day who says, don't tell me my small actions don't matter. A pebble cast into a pond causes ripples in all directions. No one has a right to sit and feel helpless. There's too much work to do. And so I think if you wanna sit and feel helpless, that's totally your, your jam. It's fine with me. But um, there are so many things that we can be doing and there are so many reasons for hope and um, so many potential solutions that we're seeing right here in Kansas. So um, like I was joking with Sarah when I first sat down, uh, the Climate and Energy Project has top 10 reasons for hope, which hopefully I'll get to tell you all of them at some point today. Um, but one of them is that we're, we're 48th in the nation for energy efficiency. And most people would look at that and say, and why is that a good thing, right? Well, it's a good thing because there's nothing but potential for us to go right up that ladder until we're first for energy efficiency and we're really taking care of the people in our communities and we're saving energy and we're making um, our small communities and our large communities and everything in, in between really resilient. So um, I just wanted to kind of temper things out a little bit because it can be, like I've, I've, I've worked in this field for a long time, I know everybody else up here has, it's really easy to get um, super stuck in the mire and um, feel like everything is hopeless and it's really not. Um, there are a lot of things you can do. Can you mention another reason for hope? I can, but I'm gonna have to look at my notes because I don't have them off the top of my head. Um, so uh, Kansas has the second best wind resource in the nation, so that's fantastic. We are already making the shift to clean energy sources. Our utilities, the Kansas utilities, went from 2.5% to over 24% renewable energy in 10 years. It's actually higher than that now. Um, we have so much solar. Kansas is in the top five for um, solar potential in the United States. And as I mentioned, as solar prices drop, solar installations are increasing. And we're just starting to see that growth in Kansas. We have one-tenth of 1% 1 solar uh, distributed generation in Kansas right now, which is just like a teeny, teeny, tiny portion of what we're, we're, um, we have the potential to produce. Um, I already mentioned that we're 48th in the nation for energy efficiency, so go us, we can, we can do it. Um, and if that's the, actually, if it's not worse, or if it doesn't you know, drive you enough, I might drop that Missouri had the most improved score for energy efficiency. So if Missouri can do it, Kansas can do it. Um, we know that Kansans love energy efficiency. Uh, the Our Take Charge Challenge was wildly successful, and once when you talk to Kansans about energy efficiency, generally speaking, they're like, oh, that makes sense. I can save energy, and I can save money, and I'm still very comfortable. Fantastic. Um, and uh, Kansas voters, generally speaking, support renewable energy. Uh, so we've done, we did a poll by one of the most conservative pollsters um, a couple years back, and that reflected that nine in 10 Kansas voters, voters support renewable energy. So um, that's a great thing that's going. I just have a couple more, can oh. I finish? There are 10. Okay. <laughs> the, we want hope. That's, that's I'm, I'm all about hope. I'm the hope girl. So the Clean Energy Business Council is a program we run. So businesses are really starting to see renewable energy and energy efficiency as practical business solutions. 
Um, farmers and ranchers are innovating, as I've said. Um, and organizations are coming together in Kansas um, through this wealth partnership, um, really to address climate change, climate resilience, and health equity. Um, and really, our number one reason for hope is that you all are here today, because you are the people, you are the ones who have the most power to make a difference in our world through individual actions, through community networking and trying to make your communities stronger, and also through um, working with your representatives, your legislators at the state and federal level. So, yay, hope. Give yourselves a round of applause. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Mentioned that the Kansas Mesonet is doing its part. Um, all of our stations are running on solar power completely. So uh, we've been doing that for years now. KMUW also recently got solar panels on its roof, so we have that going for us, too. Um, Susan, I'm not sure if you're the one to ask uh, on this one, but can you or someone on the panel uh, explain carbon credit programs, what impact they have on climate change, and whether or not Kansas farmers or other industries participate in the programs? Or maybe, maybe Rachel, who, is, who, who can do this one? Anybody know anything about this? Huh? We'll research it. It. Go ahead. Um, there is a program um, that we're not really too much involved in right now, but basically what it is is you get credit for um, reducing the amount of your carbon or for storing carbon. It's much more popular in Europe where they actually have a carbon exchange, and it's uh, one of the big difficulties is how do you validate that the carbon that has been sequestered or stored is actually there and sequestered and stored, and how do you monetize that? And there's a lot of discussion on that right now. Hmm. Oh, so Bitcoin, right? Pardon? <laughs> <laughs> One of the big problems in Kansas is they um, don't necessarily give carbon credits for grass. It's more of a forest um, because they think it's stored longer in the trees rather than um, having it in, in vegetation that changes uh, regular. There is some debate about the underground mass on grasses where you've got a really extensive root system where you are storing that carbon and it's not being lost. But again, there's a lot of uh, discussion in that and how to do that. Um, are any of you seeing a movement among young people or millennials in getting involved in climate issues and... Uh, Especially from you know the the perspective of you know that this is the world that they will be inheriting, are you seeing a movement, Susan? So teach at WSU and Fringe University, and the students are very involved. They're very interested in what they can do and what projects they can do. So, and not just climate change, but any environmental issue. I see that they really have the motivation to go forward and see that that's part of their future and they want to change it and make it better. What do you see them motivated to do? And if you want to jump in, Mary, go for it. I was going to say that similar in, at K-State, some of the things are um, recycling programs that are uh, being ingrained in the university. Um, looking at mass transit rather than individual vehicles and participating in um, riderships either on the bus system or even bicycles or some other method rather than a combustion engine to, to get around with. And then also in increasing their studies in the environmental and climate area so they have a better understanding of what are the concerns, what are the um, possibilities, and how can they um, prepare for them. 
Well, one of my students did the river cleanup. That was her project, started it and carried through with it. Oh, wow. So uh, they, they see that littering, the trash you were talking about that you see, that bothers them a lot. And how can we stop people from doing it? How can we clean up? And water quality issues, they're really big on that. Um, so I'll actually take it a little younger than college. Um, so for, oh, I don't know, four or five years, I worked with um, a Catholic uh, elementary school in Lawrence. Um, and that school actually ended up getting the Kansas Green School of the Year Award from um, the Kansas Association for Conservation and Environmental Education. They have a green schools program. And we started that uh, program with a, a, a basic composting plan. Um, because uh, there was there was just a lot of food waste going on in the cafeteria. And if that's something you're interested in, I could talk your ear off about it, but a lot of people kind of roll their eyes and glaze over about about food waste. But um, we uh, we started composting, and, um, and then there was a clear how much was being wasted, and so it actually ended up changing the whole culture of the lunchroom. The lunch ladies and the students kind of worked together to figure out other ways um, to serve the food. So instead of getting a pre-made plate, the kids, um, the, the lunch ladies uh, put out um, different types of food and had they had like a color dot system so the kids could make their own lunches. It had to, had to get a certain amount so it was still balanced. But it ended up reducing waste by I think 40% in the school, which also ended up saving a lot of money for the school. So that was kind of the first thing we did there. Um, and then we got connected with Casey and the Kansas Green Schools program. And they have, um, they call them, I'm not going to get the name, they have these five investigations that you can do with school children of all ages, um, elementary through high school, um, where they do, I think Susan was talking about a waste audit. I, I was with a group of sixth graders who got every trash bin from the whole school, and we did a waste audit on the floor. It was not the best thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> <laughs> but it was really impactful to the kids. And what ended up happening, you know, over a, a period of three or four, probably actually closer to five years, um, was that these kids really kind of took over the situation. And they were like little um, uh, environmental police in the school where they would be, oh, you can't put that in the trash can. That's recycling. And um, the kindergartners had this chant. They used to recycle their, or they would compost their snacks and take them out to the bird garden. So the kids also planted gardens. We got a grant from Westire to uh, put out uh, school gardens. And these kindergartners would say, composting, composting, another way to recycle. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, it's, it's, there's a ton of different examples from working with kids in schools as a volunteer um, but it, it, it's, again, that's another huge reason for hope right there because the kids, you talk to them about this and they get it. And then they end up being the kids in college who are like, yeah, no, we're not going to keep doing it like this. Um, I know that one of the kids from, from St. John's, when they went to middle school or to high school, they were shocked that there wasn't, there wasn't a composting program in the lunchroom and started to work with the school to try to implement a composting program because why not, right? And so, I mean, I think to me, the kids really are, are the hope for all of us. And um, I think every, like I said, everybody, you got to find your, your, your thing that works for you to do. And if working with kids or working with college students or high school kids or whatever fits your bill, just go and offer to volunteer to help your local school, even if you're not a parent, and they will be thrilled to have you. And the kids just eat it up. Uh, locally, Coleman Middle School is... Uh, doing that, they're composting, they have a beehive that the kids can see from the side, they grow their food, 
and they've cut back from five dumpsters to one dumpster. Wow. So they're really doing great. Of course, Earhart Elementary is an environmental elementary school. But I want to add one thing. Dillon's is going towards zero waste. Um, we've been talking to them, and Dillon's stores, you know, and I hate to say this, you know, I told you we did the waste analysis. Uh, you see all of these Valentines out there, or... Halloween stuff and all, and all of a sudden the day after the holiday, everything's cleared out. When we were doing the waste analysis, I'm not pointing at Dylan's on this, I'm just saying any store, it was there, brand new teddy bears, brand new uh, hearts, candy boxes, all of that was just thrown in the trash. But Dylan's is addressing that in marking stuff down first. You'll see a lot of products marked down in the store, where now they're giving the food away to the people who need it and the organizations who need it. So it's starting on the corporate level to try to cut back on waste. Um, Mary, you mentioned to me that science is never settled. Can you talk about uh, a little, we mentioned a little bit earlier the unintended consequences of environmental activism, um, but tell me why scientists need to keep asking questions and, uh, and keep working on this. Well, the very definition of science is investigating the unknown. And so uh, if you, um, become complacent and think you know all the answers, then you're not looking for what you might not know. And so when I say science isn't settled, it's, a, it's an ongoing question that you're continually investigating and expanding to find out more about um, various systems uh, of any type. And so, again, it's a constant, uh, let's continue to expand our knowledge. And if you Assume that you know the answers, uh, then you've lost the perspective to find what you might not know. And that's one thing that I was taught when I first started science was that you should never assume that you've got the answer right. You should always be questioning, what don't I see? What am I missing? What can I do better? I think a lot of that comes through groups and agencies and uh, corporations working together with other groups and corporations. Um, that they wouldn't expect to work with. You know, putting people, I mean, something like this, where I haven't met a couple people on this panel, and just thinking outside the box more as a group, I think you'll, you'll come to find that there, there's many new solutions to problems we don't even, we don't even know about yet. Um, and, and I think you find that in science, too. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a field that's ever-changing. It's never constant. Go back and look at, you know, maybe a fifth-grade science book now compared to what it was 20 years ago. And I mean, that's just 20 years of knowledge, let alone um, from, from 100 years. So um, we can't ever set, set, our, set our mind on that this is, this is the one solution. It, it's a constant, as mentioned a couple of times. Um, so I think doing something like this is a step in, in that direction. Thank you. Um, are there any good forms of geoengineering that you guys kind of have on your radar? Define geoengineering. I can't. It's an audience question. <laughs> Sorry. That's but I, geoengineering is where we are attempting to manipulate the atmosphere or the planet. And my take on it is there's nothing out there now that they've studied far enough to be able to say, oh, we can apply it and we won't make more of a problem than we've had. Um, we have, as, as a 
human race have tried to manipulate our environment in multiple, multiple occasions, and we've done a very poor job when we've attempted it. So um, that's where I'm going at this point. Uh, I don't think we're ready for um, any of the those geoengineering techniques that have been proposed. Um, there was a, I think it was Science Magazine had a special edition that they did back in December looking at some of the geoengineering strategies and all of them came with the caveat that, okay, if we do this, then we are likely to have this kind of negative result. Um, so again, given our very poor understanding, um, I don't know that we're ready for any kind of the geoengineering techniques. I would be very, very cautious about anything. Um, and another audience question was regarding livestock and the effect of, of livestock on the climate. Is that, uh, is it exaggerated? Is it as big a deal as, uh, as we hear it is? What well, is the one of the biggest problems with the livestock, and particularly if you're talking about a confined livestock operation, is methane. And methane, they, you, you mentioned CO2 being the number one greenhouse gas. Um, actually, water vapor is. CO2 is the one that we're most commonly associated with human activity. But methane has a lifespan that is much, much longer than carbon dioxide. So if you've got that methane in the atmosphere, um, it's going to persist for much longer. One of the techniques that livestock producers are attempting to do is um, recycle that methane and use it as an energy source. And so you um, have some potential for reducing the impact that that methane might have had otherwise. Methane is also produced from landfills and the uh, decomposition of the vegetation in those. And some landfills are selling that gas to industries to right. use. Yeah, again, another case of recycling that methane and using it in a beneficial way rather than simply venting it to the atmosphere to create additional problems. I'm trying to think of how they capture methane from livestock, but I'm, I'm not going to. It's that not a pretty picture. Head. No, <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to think about that. Uh, I, I think another, at least, way, well, sticking with the methane for a minute. It, I like to see, and I don't, I don't have the, the knowledge here, but what the comparison is of like current livestock to what like maybe some of the ancient buffalo herds were. Um, I mean, because there, there have been large amounts of critters, for lack of a better word, um, on, on the planet for a long time, and that, that comparison might not be too much different from what we've seen, what we see now. Um, so another impact, at least with livestock, would be uh, you know, water. Um, they need water to live. They also need water to be sanitary. Um, and then they also, in a way, create their own water um, and, and pollute that water. So we haven't really mentioned it too much, but drinking water is probably one of the, probably going to be the biggest problem uh, in the world here in, in not too long. Um, and, and a lot of that's due to the different things that we're doing with water and the, the resultant water either being too saline or too polluted. Um, and so we, we got to think outside the box with some of these other things too. Um, and maybe say things like injection wells and that kind of thing of geoengineering. People are trying to do stuff with that water. Um, and how do, we, how do we basically keep stuff in the system without ever letting it dispel? Um, and find ways to make everything renewable and useful to us. Um, and and while, while having that 
for the future generations. Uh, the last question I'd like to ask every time we have Engage ICT is uh, what can we all do? What can an individual do to help address these problems that we've been talking about? And if we want to go down the row or just speak as you're inspired to speak, what are some things that we can all do today and tomorrow? I think the first step we can do is just make friends with your neighbor. Uh, um, but we, we're not going to be able to get anywhere without coming together. And by having an enemy or having a neighbor you're not going to talk to um, either means that you, you, you don't want to help the, for the future or uh, maybe you just don't know what the right cause is. But, uh, you know, things from the heat wave, locking yourself in the house, you know, 100 years, or I don't know when that heat wave was, but um, and not going over to your neighbor, that's, that's, that's a big deal. Um, so that, just that, having that kind of mindset of, uh, being aware of your surroundings and being aware of how you can impact your community um, in a positive way. Uh, sitting at home at TV ain't going to cut it anymore. You got to be out gardening, that kind of thing. Teaching kids how to garden. Simple things like that will have a long way. Um, so not just thinking about the climate change or you know renewable energy, but thinking about the whole spectrum um, and whether it's from grade school or, or, or to us as adults. We can, we can always think outside the box and come up with new ways to make a positive impact. So I've been kind of saying what I think you should do throughout the whole thing, um, but uh, I, I, I agree um, with what Chip's saying too. Um, I think the most important thing really is to figure out what your hook is, like to figure out what your particular angle is that you're most passionate about. Um, like I said, if you're a farmer and ran or a rancher, um, or if you are a school teacher, or um, if you're a facilities person and you manage a building, you know, and you're interested in saving money, I mean, there's a ton of different angles for this. And like I said earlier, it really isn't all hands on deck. So you can't you can't really say, I don't know, it doesn't really connect with me. And so it's really a matter of saying, how does this connect with me? And what can I learn that might help me be a better advocate for you know, the future of our uh, future generations, for example? Um, one quick thing that I, I had hoped we would talk about on this, but it didn't come out, but it's relevant to the solutions bit, is that um, for me, for the whole time I've been doing this work, the biggest advocates or the people who were talking the most about climate change have been the scientists. And uh, I think a great hook that's happening right now is that the people who are really, really vocal, at least in my world right now, are the public health professionals. So the um, American Academy of Pediatrics has the strongest statement on climate change I've ever seen. Um, the American Lung Association, the American Heart Association, the um, American Public Health Association, and I need to get the name, declared 2016 or 2017 the year of uh, climate and health. So if you go to the American Public Health Association's website, they have every month they did just extensive education, public education campaigns on pretty much every topic of that could ever touch climate issues. So it's everything. Really, really great resource. So that's again, that's a hook. You know, if you're a nurse or a doctor, or if you have kids with asthma, or if you have chronic illness yourself, like figure out how this is going to affect you and people who have your condition, and reach out to them. And the the number one thing that I like to tell people, I agree, talk to your neighbor. 
but I really encourage people to ask questions. So when you talk to your neighbor, you don't go over to your neighbor and say, you know, this climate change thing, it's a real problem, and you're part of the problem too, and I'm trying to fix things, but you're the problem. That's not going to really go anywhere. <laughs> but if you go up to your neighbor and say, hey, man, it's really hot, you know, um, what do you think is going on with this? Then it opens up a dialogue. You know, have you heard about this climate change thing? What do you think? Um, I have allergies, and I never had allergies before. I, I was at a presentation. I heard that might have something to do with changing crop cycles. Have you heard about that? And get into a conversation with somebody. So it's not an antagonistic conversation. I think all too often we get fire in our belly, and, and we just want to go out, you know, guns blazing. Well, let's not do that. Try to be nice and ask questions. I guess I'm going to go back to kind of the beginning, uh, what we talked about, um, and some of the questions that you asked. And and I want to think about, uh, I, I guess I want us to think about uh, something. I, I just want to give a hat tip to a guy at work. One time we had a big tornado outbreak coming, and he said, be prepared, not scared. And I think that's something we need to be um, with this argument. You know, we've kind of talked about a lot of the things that we can do uh, at our own personal level. And I think we need to do those. But I think we also need to um, go out and do our own research. This country was founded on, on the premise of having an educated public, an educated voting public. And my, my challenge to each one of you would be to go out and do your own research on climate change. There's all kinds of information out there. There's, there's some that show a real significant rise in temperature all the way to the ones that show no climate change. Well, which is right? You know, I would, I would argue don't follow people over the ledge like lemmings. To go out, do your own research, know what you believe and why you believe it. Because when you come, when they will have voting items on ballots sometime, my challenge to you is, is know why you're voting that way, not just because your neighbor said you should. And so um, it's okay to be a, a, a full-bore skeptic. It's okay to be a full-bore, I believe, in X, Y, Z but no, I do that. As our population continues to grow, the amount of resources we need to feed, clothe, give us our toys that we like grows. So we have more mining, we have more waste, we use more water, we have more pollution of that water from our activities. I'd say the best thing is to conserve, learn how we conserve our resources, I work with farmers on that as well, with best management practices for the field to stop runoff so they can use less fertilizer that's being lost to the stormwater runoff. So how can we work with our own land, gardening, whatever we can do, but how can we conserve, recycle, and produce less waste because we have limited resources for those materials? And I'm at the end of the line, so I can sum up all of them. <laughs> and really, it comes down to looking at what can I do, um, rather than pushing it off at somebody else's problem. Um, what are the actions that I have under my control that I can tweak so that I am having a positive impact on the environment around me and minimizing what negative impacts I might have? Thank you. Uh, that concludes our discussion this evening. Let's have a big round of applause for our panel. Thank you all for coming out tonight. Um, our environmental series is
going to continue on May 8th with a discussion of energy, and then on June 5th, we will talk about sustainability, specifically at Engage ICT. So uh, mark your calendars for those discussions. Those will also be really interesting uh, conversations. And thank you again for coming. Uh, we really appreciate you. And I should also mention, we were talking about our partners at the beginning, our thanks to Roxy's in the library. Well, uh, KMUW also has to thank its listeners for your support. We have a pledge drive that begins this week. And it is because of you, in the end, that we are able to do what we do, that we are able to put on Engage ICT Democracy on Tap. So thank you in advance for supporting KMUW this pledge drive. And uh, have a wonderful evening. And thank you for coming out tonight. Thanks for joining us for Engage ICT Democracy on Tap. Find more podcasts and videos at engageict.org. This show was hosted at Roxy's Downtown in Wichita, Kansas. The engineer is Torin Anderson, Beth Golay is the producer, and I'm the host. For KMUW, I'm Sarah Jane Crespo.